Hey, uh, good morning. Welcome um, to Grace Point. Those of you who are here in the room with us, those of you who are joining us online, uh, really, really good to see you. And uh, for those of you who join us online, good to be seen by you. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're in part two of this series called um, I Love My Ecclesia. We started last week um, talking about this um, growing, multiplying assembly, gathering, congregation um, that, that, that we've called or that we know of as um, the ecclesia. The, the other word for it is, is a word that can be um, misunderstood, misapplied, even mistaken sometimes. It's a loaded word for a lot of people. Uh, but this series is all about the church, the big C church and the little C um, church that we know of as, as Grace Point. And for some, church, again, is a good, it, 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 it's a good thing. Whenever you hear the word church, for some of you, it brings good things to mind because your experience has been nothing but good. You've met nothing but good people. Um, for others of us, there's some baggage whenever it comes to, to, to church. And it's not the little kind of baggage that fits in the upper hand compartment. It's the big, huge baggage that you have to, it's really awkward to bring along with you. So depending on your experience, church is either a really good thing or it can be a, a negative thing. And, and there's all kinds of things in between as well. For some, church is something you do. Maybe it's something you've done since you were a little kid um, and your parents made you go to church and you've just kind of continued that as an adult. For some, church is an event, something you do on the weekend, something you show up for, you take part in, and then you leave and you move on with your life. For some church is um, a, a liturgy or a tradition, and you take those elements away, and it's not church because there's not the liturgy. There's not the tradition. So uh, for those of you who joined us last week, either on-site or online, I want to do a little bit of a review. Please help my preacher's heart feel really, really good by remembering what we said last week, okay? little fill in the blank here. Let's see if you can remember. We said the church is a blank, not a blank. The church is a what? People. Yes. 200 bonus points for all of you who said that. The church is a people, not a place. Yes. Man. Second service. Mm, love you. Church is a people, not a place. The weekly gathering, the building, that's a part of church, right? It's an important part of church. The liturgy, the tradition, that can help guide the church. But at its most basic, fundamental level, the church is you. The church is me. The church is us. It's a people, not a place. It's a multiplying movement of Jesus' followers all throughout the generations. We, we looked at two words. Remember, we, we learned a couple words last week. One of them was Greek. It was ekklesia. It's the word, uh, the movement, uh, the gathering, the assembly, the congregation. Um, that's the word that you see Jesus talk about in Matthew. The second word is a German word, kirche. I'm probably not pronouncing that right, but that's, that's the other word uh, that we talked about. Some of you grew up in churches where the pastor would get up on the stage and he would say, welcome to the Lord's house, right? That's where that comes from. It's the, it's the word kirche. It means the Lord's house. Um, the problem is you can't find the word kirche in the Bible. It's not there. You find the word ekklesia in the Bible. Kirche didn't come along until about 300 years after Jesus had left. So when you see the word church in your Bible, it's talking about the ecclesia, this movement, this gathering, this assembly, this congregation of people 
that have said yes to Jesus, who've said yes to follow him, who've surrendered their hearts and surrendered their lives to Jesus, who believe that what Jesus did on the cross makes things right between us and God. That's what the ecclesia is. That's what the church is. And we looked at day one, right? Last week, looked at day one uh, where Peter preaches the message of a lifetime. 3,000 people say yes to Jesus. They're baptized. That's a great day for any preacher, right? And, and the church is launched. The church starts. It's off and running. But it doesn't stop there. In fact, um, scholars will tell us that that day began the most dynamic, exponential chapter in the history of the church. Over the next 70 years, the church goes from 120 to a million Jesus followers throughout the Roman Empire. That's, that means the ecclesia grew at the greatest rate that it ever has and since ever has been, right? And, and it's this exponential growth. In fact, um, here's, here's how one historian puts it. He says, never in the history of the human race has this record ever quite been equaled. Never in so short a time has any religious faith, or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political, or economic, without the aid of physical force or of social or cultural prestige, achieved so commanding a position in such an important culture. Two things. That kind of growth that you saw in the first 70 years of the church, that kind of expansion, it doesn't happen without force or connection. And number two, did you know, if you consider your part, yourself a part of Jesus' church, that's your history? That, that's a part of your history as a follower of Jesus. So uh, today, I want to ask the question, how did it happen? And maybe even more importantly, um, could it happen again? Could that happen again? God, God did something. Like, we can, we can debate what he did, but it's obvious that God did something in and through the church long before the baggage showed up, long before all this stuff that's come over the last um, 2,000 years of church history. But can, can God do that? Is he still interested in doing something in and through the church today? What would that look like? And, and how might you and I, how might we, how might Grace Point be a part of that? That's what we're going to look at today. So we're going to pick up where we left off. Um, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, if you want to follow along your Bible or mobile device, I hope you took me up on um, my challenge to read the first two chapters in the book of Acts this week. Um, it kind of gives you a little bit of idea of, of where, what, what's been going on. Uh, but again, 3,000 people said, we believe in Jerusalem, in the city where Jesus lived and crucified and was raised from the dead. They're baptized. And here's what Luke tells us happened next. It says, they, all 3,120 of them, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And here's the result of all that. And the Lord added to their number daily those 
who are being saved. So here we go. I'm telling you right now, you better duck because this is so practical. Nuts and bolts are going to start flying at your face, okay? It says they're so devoted. They're devoted to some things. That means they were, they were relentlessly committed. Now, we know. We know what this looks like. There are um, things in your life that you're so devoted to, to such an extent that if you stopped doing them, you would feel a little bit off. There's some things that are part of your rhythm, uh, a part of your pattern daily, weekly, monthly. It could be exercise. It could be diet. Um, it could be um, a, a favorite show that you watch, maybe being with family, what, whatever it is. We know what it's like to be devoted to something. And here's one that's relatively new to the human race. Um, and it's a little bit old, but um, Quest Communications did a survey back in 2009 to see how long people could go without checking email, text, or social media. And even saying that, some of you are itching to reach for your phone right now, right? They, they, they wanted to see how much angst, how long people could go without feeling that angst. And it's, it was a self-assessed survey, so you don't really know how accurate it was. But, but here's, actually, what? I'm getting a text. So there. Just kidding. I'm not getting a text. Here's what they found. 7%. 7% said they could go one week without without checking any of those things. Some of you are thinking, there's no, there's no way I could go one week without. Some of you are like, what's email? We're on both ends of the spectrum, right? 7% said they could go one week without. 46% with God said with God's help, they could go one day without. And 47% said they think maybe they could go one hour without. Now, again, this is 11 years old. A lot has happened over the last 11 years. So I, those numbers would be much different if we did the survey today. But, but whether we admit it or not, we're devoted. We're devoted to these things. And for some of us, it's because it's a part of our job. Uh, for some of us, it's because we fear missing out. FOMO is real. Some of us, we, we just, we're just afraid we're, we're going to miss something. Or it's just that you know, it's just crucial to your existence as a human being to post a picture of your iced tea at Applebee's on Insta, <laughs> right? It's just so important. You're devoted to it, relentlessly committed to it. This is the idea that Luke is getting at, that these people, these Jesus followers, the early church was devoted to some things. They were devoted, number one, to the apostles' teaching. Now, they didn't, they didn't have a Bible like you have. They didn't have a phone where they could access Scripture online. Um, they didn't have the New Testament written, collected, and put together in a nice leather-bound book. So the apostles would tell the story of Jesus. They would go back into the Hebrew Scriptures, and they would make the connection between what was foretold thousands of years ago and, and the story of Jesus. They would witness, they would testify to what they saw, to what they heard to what they experienced, and then the church would get together and they would retell the story. They would talk about it. They would encourage each other with it. They, they, they were devoted to spending time together, connecting the Hebrew scriptures to the things they saw and heard from Jesus. They were devoted to the story of Jesus. And I just, I just want to say, if you're new to our church or you're hanging out with us trying to figure out maybe what you believe about this stuff, you just need to know 
we're kind of old school when it comes to this. We're always going to go back to the story of Jesus. We're always going to point you to Scripture because we think that's our best bet at figuring out who we are and who God is and how we fit into his plan. Because we don't believe that this life is about us. We believe it's about him. So we're always going to go back to, to, to God's word. We think it's just as relevant for us today as it was thousands of years ago. We are not a church that claims to have the one and only correct interpretation of Scripture. We won't always get it right. I know pastors are not supposed to admit that publicly, but we won't always get it right. But we are going to be people devoted to the story of Jesus. We are going to be people who constantly go back. What does God's word say? We will align ourselves with it instead of aligning it with us. And another important piece of this, I just gotta say this. If the ecclesia is a people, not a place, that means we don't devote ourselves to scripture one day a week. That, that, that means we don't devote ourselves um, to, you know, let the pastor devote himself or herself to Scripture and everybody shows up to listen to, about their devotion, right? I mean, I've said it before, but if you only ate once a week, you would be malnourished. You would not be healthy. And there are too many Christians walking around that are malnourished. Don't be one of them. Don't be one of them. Just refuse to be one of them. I'm going to devote myself, devote my family, devote ourselves to, to, to the word of God. And it doesn't stop there. It doesn't stop there. Because, because you know, we, we would love to say, well, it's just me and God, and it's, I'm just going to read the Bible on my own, and I'll just figure it out on my, no, it doesn't stop there. Um, it, they were devoted to the apostles' teaching, but it also says they were devoted to fellowship, right? Really churchy word, Right? Don't use that word a whole lot anywhere else. Some of us, including me, grew up in churches where there was a hall where that fellowship was supposed to take place, right? What is fellowship? The Greek word here is koinonia. Koinonia, it's a really rich word. There's not one English word that's an equivalent for koinonia, but uh, the best word that we can come up with is community. It's community, but it, it's even deeper than that. There's so many layers to this. Um, Koinonia describes a group of people who are, um, they look different, they vote different, they live in different areas of the city, they work in completely different places, they, they don't view life the same, but their common bond is their awareness for their need of God's grace. That, that, that's a part of it. Um, koinonia is a, a devotion to an inner goodness, an inner virtue, but it's also a devotion to um, an outer goodness with other, with other people. You can't have koinonia without other people. It's not, a, it's not a, a single all by yourself. It also has elements of this um, co-mingling with God's spirit. There are other places in the New Testament that uses the word koinonia to, to talk about communion. So it's this idea of, of the spirit of God spilling into each other's life as we bump into each other in community. It's, it's, really, it's really, again, it's kind of hard to describe. Um, one, of the, one of the things that I missed most when we weren't gathering together 
was after service, sometimes, just sit and listen. Just sit and listen. You'll hear conversation taking place. You'll hear kids laughing. You'll see kids running around. You'll hear all this. It's just this little buzz that happens. That's koinonia. And, 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 and it happens when followers of Jesus are devoted to that. It says in verse 46, they were devoted to it daily. You say, Tim, <laughs> I'm doing the best I can to get here one day a week. These people did it daily? That sounds kind of cultish to me, right? Well, we don't know if that means all 3,000 of them met together daily or if some of them did and some of them didn't. Part of it was how their culture worked. Um, part of it was this thing was so new that they needed each other to, to survive. And, and then part of it was just this sense of awe. You read that. This sense of awe among them, I think they just wanted to get together. And this is, this is another important part for us to realize. The book of Acts is descriptive of what happened in the early church, not prescriptive. In other words, it describes what happened in the early church. It doesn't necessarily prescribe how the church throughout the ages is supposed to do it. So this idea of, of meeting together daily, it's not a command, but the idea of gathering together regularly is something you see all throughout the New Testament. It's something at the core of, of what the ecclesia is supposed to be about, which, let's just take a step back here and admit, <laughs> some of us, that comes naturally to, right? Like, it's, it's energizing, it's life-giving, you love to be around people and connect with them. Like, like, COVID has been really difficult for you. This whole isolation thing has been very difficult for you. And others... When COVID hit, you're like, I've been training for this my entire life. Like, this is easy, <laughs> right? Because it's not as life-giving. It's, it's, it's a little bit easier for you to be by yourself. And it comes as a surprise to people, but I'm in the second camp. My, my natural bent is towards solitude. My natural bent is towards being by myself. And that's just something about how... I'm wired, and I know the people who, who you only see me on a Sunday morning, you think, well, he's an extrovert. No, I'm not. This is, this is just a part of, of what I do as a part of my calling, as a part of my job. But one of the things that has called me out of my cocoon is my relationship with you. And that's not just me trying to score Pastor Brownie points. That, that's me saying one of the things that God has used to develop this in me is my relationship with, with this church. And not all of you, because I don't know all of you, specifically or, in, you know, personally, but it's the people of Grace Point. It's the, the way that you love each other. It's the way um, that, that you do koinonia that has, that has taught me the importance of what this looks like and what the, the, the active part of koinonia, being a part of the church. So again, for some of us, it's easy, it's automatic. You look for opportunities to connect with other people. For others of us, it's more of a discipline. There's, there's some of us, we just kind of have to force ourselves into environments where we experience that kind of community. But what I want you to see from the very beginning of this thing, you see followers of Jesus devoted to community, devoted to gathering together on a regular basis. We're going to come back to that 
in a minute. Uh, last part of that verse says they were also devoted to the breaking of bread and prayer. Scholars have debated uh, whether or not they're talking about communion here um, or if they're just talking about regular meals. I've, I've read arguments on both sides. I don't really think it's worth debating because the church did both. They got together and had regular meals together, and they got together and they celebrated communion together. They, they did both of those things. So here it is, just real quick, real quick. The early church devoted themselves to the story of Jesus. They devoted themselves to learning and applying God's word in their life. They devoted themselves to consistent community around the table. This is the koinonia. This is the fellowship part. And then they devoted themselves to prayer. From the very beginning, like this, these are your roots. These are my roots. From the very beginning before they had any buildings, bylaws, or bands, that's what the church was about. That's what, it, that's what it's supposed to be about. And as they did this, God kept doing things in such a way that there was this lingering sense of awe among them. There were wonders. There were signs. Amazing things happened. And then again, what, what does Luke tell us happened? And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And just so we're clear, we read that as a really good thing. And it is. It's great that people were being saved daily. It's exactly what Jesus said was going to happen. But growing churches have challenges, right? They went from 120 to 3,000 in one day. That'll create some challenges. And you can read about some of the challenges throughout the book of Acts. Let me, let me, let me say it this way. Have you ever been a part of a church of 120? Like, you know everybody. Everybody knows you. You know their names. You know their kids. You know their grandkids, their birthdays, social security numbers. There's this high trust level amongst people, right? That's where the disciples were just a few weeks ago. And God shows up and says, this isn't just for you guys. This isn't just for the 120 and it goes from 120 to 3,000 overnight. And all of a sudden, I don't know everyone here. And maybe more importantly, they don't know me. They don't know who I am. And, and I heard somebody say, we're not just going to meet all together in one big room anymore. We're going to go to each other's homes in smaller groups. Why can't we just meet together as one big group? I was fine in the inner circle of 120, but I don't know them. I don't like all this change that growth is creating. This is a problem. This is a challenge that we've faced <laughs> over the last few years. How do you make a big church feel small? How do you make sure koinonia still takes place as the, as the church gets bigger? Well, one of the ways is you, you go back to our roots. You go back to how they did it. And it tells us Verse 46, every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. First of all, number one, these are Jews who are now followers of Jesus. They're meeting in the temple courts because that's where they met to worship. That's all they knew. It's what they'd done since they, since they were born. So, so they met in the temple in a large gathering, but they also met in homes so what do you see? Large gatherings, small gatherings. 
Large gatherings, small gatherings. There are some things that can only happen in large gatherings, and there are some things that can only happen in small gatherings, right? There, there, there's this, this, um, this sense in corporate worship that you get that you can't really get at home by yourself, that you can't really get in a small group setting. It's uh, where teaching is emphasized. Uh, a lot of us have missed that over the past few months. Powerful things can happen in large gatherings. You see it happen here. It's where you can come together and, and pool your resources. You can pool your possessions. You can pool the things that God has given you for the benefit of other people. You see that happening here. You see that happening here. Those are all good things that happen in large gatherings. But there's also a need for small gatherings. It's where you can be known. It's where you can know somebody else. It's where you can, you can pray for and pray with each other. You eat together. Praise him. Apparently, these early Christians love to eat. I love that that's part of our roots. I love to eat. That's usually around a table, right? You gotta, there's something about having a meal with people where you got to slow down. You got to slow down. You look each other in the eye. There's, there's, there's a little bit deeper conversation than surface level conversations. So all of those things happen. And, and usually they happen in a home, right? It's an, it's an old word, but it's, it's called hospitality. And it's what fueled a lot of the early church koinonia. Um, years ago, I read a story of a pastor who um, surveyed his congregation and asked them, why, why are we not inviting each other over to our homes? Like, when was the last time you had somebody in your home? And, and through that survey, he got two main answers. Uh, the first one, most people were embarrassed by their furnishings. Don't want anybody to see the inside of my house. And then the second answer was, the house is a mess and it takes too much energy to clean it up. Anybody identify with this at all? There's an author who wrote a book on hospitality, and there's one sentence in her book that I, I think some of us, I don't know, but I think some of us may need to hear. So deep breath, because this might sting a little bit. All right? Here's what she says. True hospitality comes before pride. True hospitality, I would say biblical hospitality, comes before pride. Because it isn't about convincing people you're Martha Stewart. It isn't about convincing people how successful you are because look at my HGTV house. It's, it's not even really about us. It's really not about you. It's about other people. It's about creating this place where koinonia can take place. You go uh, to other cultures throughout the world. Sometimes you even go to some cultures here in America and you see a much better picture of what hospitality looks like. She, the, the, the author of this book, uh, Kara Maines goes on to tell a story of someone from her church showing up at her house unannounced. And she rings the doorbell, and, and she goes to the door, realizes what's happened, and reminds herself of the words she wrote. <laughs> True hospitality comes before pride. True hospitality comes before pride. She's got to live out her own advice. And I'll just let her take it from that point. She says, determined, I welcomed the woman with warmth invited her into the unsightly rooms and refused to embarrass her with apologies. I consciously let go of my pride and was rewarded with her amazing words. I used to think you were perfect, but now 
I think we can be friends. I don't know who needed to hear that today, but here's what I do know. Here's what I do know. And you know this too. You've experienced this. When you're vulnerable with someone, whether that's personally or with your home, something happens, doesn't it? When you're vulnerable, something always happens. And, and these early Christians, like we tend to put them up on a pedestal, but they, they were imperfect, unimpressive people, just like you and I, struggling to live out the Jesus story in a culture that was not going to help them do that, just like you and I. They were unimpressive. They were normal. But they kept clinging to God. They kept opening their homes. And they kept opening their lives to each other. And, and it doesn't say it, but it makes sense that God added to their number daily, doesn't it? Because why would God add to something that wasn't warm or loving? Why, why would God add to something that was exclusive and uninviting? I don't think he would. And the early church grew because they loved each other and the unbelieving world took notice. The early church saw God add to their number daily those who were being saved because they devoted themselves to living out the Jesus story in community and an unbelieving world said, what's that about? They, they think differently about each other than we do. They, they love each other better than we do. So I don't know. I don't know where this lands for you today, but a couple times a year, I just got to sit up here and remind us that this is part of what it means to be the ecclesia. Part of this is what it means to be the church. And my encouragement, my challenge, my, my hope for you as pastor is that you would devote yourself to this kind of koinonia. Devote yourself to meeting regularly with a smaller group of people than are here in this room or that are, that are joining us online. And for some of you, is that more risky to step out of your comfort zone to do that than others? Yes, it is. Will you have to say no to other things so you can say yes to this? Probably. Will those people be your best friends for the rest of your life? Have no idea. Are they axe murderers? I sure hope not. But you'll have to find that out right? We realize that we can't force people to do this. And you know what? COVID has added some new wrinkles and challenges. And we're trying to think through those. We're trying to make adjustments for those. But even before COVID, there were plenty of reasons not to do this. There are plenty of excuses not to do this. All I know is the early church did it. They were devoted to it. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And it wasn't because of the large group gatherings. You take away the large group gatherings, we miss it, we long for it, we want to get back to it as soon as possible. But please hear me, it doesn't stop koinonia. It doesn't have to stop it because that's the power, that's the beauty, that's the, the adaptability of the ecclesia. And so... 
our small group season is starting back up again here in a, in a few short weeks. Some of you are going to continue right along with the group you're already a part of. Some of you are, are going to look for a new group. Some of you are going to jump into a group for the very first time. You're going to hear more about those opportunities starting next week. I, I just want you to hear, this is a part for us as a church. This is a part of what it means to be the ecclesia. I'm sorry it's a loaded word, but this is what it means to be the church. This is what it means to be a part of Jesus' movement. So I'm, I'm just asking you, are you willing to take a risk? Are you willing to step out there? Or are you willing to be a part of what Jesus is still doing in and through his church? And if you are, if you are, part of that is going to involve devoting yourself, being relentlessly committed to, to community in a circle, around a table, in a living room, instead of just simply devoting yourself to sitting in a row. We want you, I want you, to be committed to this. So let us help you. Let's make it as easy as possible for you to get into community. We're going to talk about that more next week. So hold on with us, all right? Let me pray for us, and then we're going to sing together. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Thank you for um, preserving it for us. It, it, uh, it's amazing to think sometimes what it took for us to be able to have a Bible, to be able to look back at the history of your church, what you've done throughout the ages. And God, a lot of things have changed and some things have stayed the same. And God, I guess this is one of the things that I don't know if we want to change. We want to continue to see you develop this kind of fellowship, this kind of community in and amongst us. And yes, it's, it's difficult. It's more difficult for some of us than it is for others. Just like with, with church, We've got good experiences with small group and some of us have bad experiences with small group. But God, we, we want to be a part of your big C church, your ecclesia. And so God, would you help us? Help us to know what it looks like for us to not just be a disciple, but to make a disciple. And for that to happen, we need koinonia, we need fellowship. God, would you do through us what you did back then? Would you add to our numbers daily those who are being saved? Because this is your church. And we want more and more people to experience the kind of grace that we've been able to experience. That you've done in us. Would you do it in them? We love you. We praise you. And we ask all of this. In Jesus' name.